We are in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 still. I uh, opted to spend a little bit more time to camp here for a while because of this very important passage of Scripture that we're looking at today as we started to look at last week. It's a hard message to both hear and to present. It's a message of condemnation. It's a message of God's wrath. It's a message of the evil that is surrounding surrounding us even in this hour. It's a message of God's intent to make the world know that He is God. And yet, in spite of all that He has done, they still reject Him. So it's a very sad message from God's perspective looking over this people that should have realized, that should have been willing to hear and to apply and to do the things that God asked of them, but they would not. So this is a message indeed that I think, though none of us here in this room, I believe, are apt to experience. If we know Christ, I know that for a fact. You will not experience it. I'm convinced of that. We talked about that. First Thessalonians was in that respect, warning the church not to concern ourselves with the things that we'll be looking at today, but warning the church that we need to be prepared, that there is a time coming when these things will unfold and we are to be ready for those things. We are warned by the Lord Jesus, by the Apostle Paul, by Peter. It is plenty of space in the New Testament and in the Old Testament that leads me to believe, I hope that you understand, this is my opinion, but I believe it's solid. I believe it is right. It's according to the Word of God. And my effort to study God's Word, rightly dividing it, is so very important to me. And I hope you understand, I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. I believe the Lord will come for His church before the events that are recorded here will take place. So why is this particular passage important to us as believers? Because it's important to the Thessalonians in Paul's day. It's important to us also for many other reasons. Because these things are about to happen, and there's a world of saints, a world of unbelievers as well, living in this time. Jesus had said, in a parable, that the wheat will grow with tares. Both will be together in the last days. Then the harvest will come. And then the wheat will be separated from the tares. That's a clear indication that evil will persist throughout man's existence on this earth. But there is a righteous element. There is a remnant of those who believe in God's Word. That's you and I if we have received Christ as our Lord and our Savior. That's you and I if we have been redeemed by the saving grace of God. That's you and I if the Holy Spirit dwells in us. That's you and I if we have sought His forgiveness and received it by faith. But there's a world that we are still living in that is dark. Very, very dark. And it's getting darker by every moment that passes. And that darkness seems to be coming more and more into focus. As Sandy had said, we saw the movie uh, this weekend, Sound of Freedom. And it is a pretty extreme and difficult movie to watch. But I'm glad we went. We knew about such things, but we didn't really have all the many details that were conveyed to us in that movie. How does that system work? What is the benefit to those who are involved in it? It was a very, very eye-opening experience for me, and I know for those who came as well, to the evil that is out there in great, great quantity. Well, didn't Jesus say that The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Why is this happening? Well, the truth of the matter is, the tares and the wheat grow together. 
throughout the history since the church began, tares and wheat have been sharing the same ground, if you will. And the difference is light and darkness. Jesus had said, they love the darkness rather than the light. But we're here as light to shine that light in that darkness so that they can see that their sin is being revealed. So that they can see that there is judgment to come. That's what Paul is going to be talking about in this passage that we'll be looking at today. In chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians, we began last week reading the first five verses. And we ended with verse 5, where Paul asked the question, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So I'd like to review quickly with you what things is he referring to. So go back with me a couple verses. Read verse 3 and 4 with me. Where in verse 3 of chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Paul is referring to the one that we know of as the Antichrist. The word Antichrist is composed of two root words in the original Greek, anti-Christos. And the word anti from the Greek can be used in two different ways. It can be used instead of, but it also can be used opposed to, against. So the Antichrist is both against Christ and instead of Christ. I'm reminded that Jesus made mention of that very fact when he shared with his disciples in chapter 4, or rather chapter 5 of John's Gospel, verse 43, where he says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in, my, in his name, him you will receive. Jesus was talking to the Jewish people in his day. And he said, look, I've arrived. I have come. I am the very Son of God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the gate. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am all these things, but you would not receive. He's telling those Jewish unbelievers that there's another one who will come in his place that they will receive. That is who is being spoken of by the Apostle Paul here. This Antichrist. The Bible calls him the beast in the book of Revelation. Paul refers to him here as the son of perdition, the man of sin. In the book of Daniel, he is referred to as the king of the north. There's so, so much in the Word of God regarding this one individual. How could anybody read either the Old Testament or the New Testament and not see what God is speaking to the church and to all before even the church was in existence? That there is coming a day when mankind will seek to destroy himself because they love darkness rather than light. They love the evil. That's why evil persists. That's why things are happening in the world today and it is on the increase. Remember, we talked about Jesus' own words in Matthew 24 where he said those signs that he had described are like birth pangs. They will be coming with greater intensity and more frequently as we get closer to that day. So if you look around at the world events that are taking place in this time that we live, can you not see? Do you not know that these are the last days? It is so very, very clear. Things are lining up. The nations are not in control. God is in control. And He's putting everything into place. He's setting the stage for the final act. And I believe it's very, very close. The final act is this. A cup of wrath will be poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. 
That's what Paul is going to be addressing here in this passage. And as we've just read in verses 3 and 4, there is coming a time when first there will be a falling away. Now we looked a little bit at that the last time we were here. And what we, I believe, is looking at, what we are looking at is an event that will take place. That will be the cause of much, much confusion, disillusionment. And evil will prevail when that event finally does occur. Now, Paul isn't here, I don't believe, exclusively referring to the rapture of the church. Although he did so in chapter 2, verse 1, when he said, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that is a reference to the church being taken out of this world. Paul wanted the Thessalonian church because they were confused. Things were happening in that day in Thessalonica that caused them to wonder, well, did we miss the rapture? Is this the tribulation that Paul spoke of? And to the answer he gives, it's obvious. No, that has not yet taken place. It's still yet for a time that has not taken place, but will. But he gives details here in this section of Second Thessalonians about the events that follow the rapture of the church so that they can know that since none of this has happened, then they're in good standing. They're still serving the Lord and they're, yes, experiencing tribulation, difficulties, trials, but it's not the tribulation. Paul makes a very matter-of-fact statement here. He makes a distinction between the events that they were experiencing and the events that will take place in the last days. So here again, Paul reminds them, I told you about these things, do you not remember? In verse 5, when I was with you, he spent just three Sabbath days with them. And how many days after that, we're not told. But for three Sabbath days in the synagogue, he talked not only about the salvation that is available to them through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, that was the central part of the gospel that he was presenting everywhere he went, but he also told them very specific details about the end times. That's why in 1 Thessalonians, especially in chapter 4, Paul gives us the information that is nowhere else found in the Word of God with regard to the event that will happen someday in our yet to be future when we will be caught up together with all the saints who have gone on before us in the air and we will be with the Lord from that moment on. So this passage again that we're looking in in 2 Thessalonians is not about the church. The church is no longer here. So why is it important? Well, I want you to know that it's important, again, because it's in the Word of God. And we need to know the Word of God so that we can convey these truths to others who do not know the Word of God. I spent some time yesterday talking with the man who's doing the painting of this church building. And he's doing a wonderful job, by the way. And it's about a third of the way done. And it's looking great. But he came into my office yesterday. And we had a good, long conversation about the things that are going on in the world. He was soaking it up. He was very interested. Born a Catholic, as I was but far from the church now. But he had questions. He saw that things are happening in the world and he had questions. That is going on in the minds of many, many people in the world today. That's why it's important for us. So that we can tell them when they ask. And we can tell them truth. And perhaps the Lord's Spirit will draw them. That's my prayer for many, many people, not just that man that I spoke with yesterday, but there's so many people that I know, that you know, acquaintances, family members, workers, they all need to know. I intend to spend this time today primarily on this topic of the Antichrist. Where is the church? Again, the church is no longer on the earth. What's happening with the church during the time that is described by the Apostle Paul? Well, the Lord willing, that will be next Sunday's topic. There's a, a lot of information regarding what is the Lord going to be doing with the church when we're in heaven and the earth is falling apart and the world is crumbling 
and men are dying in their sin. We'll be out of here. But what is it that we'll be involved with? Again, that's next week's topic. If you're interested, please join me. Invite somebody. It's important stuff to know. And perhaps after that, we'll be looking at what takes place after these seven years that we're talking about here today. There's so much in the Word of God about that as well. So we're going to camp on these topics for a short season. I hope you don't mind. But here we are. The tribulation period. Known as the 70th week of Daniel. Daniel chapter 9 talks about that particular series of events that will take place during that time. Hasn't happened yet, but it will. I'd like you to go there with me right now. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel was given a vision. And the angel of the Lord came and gave him the explanation, the interpretation of what he saw in that vision. And I'm going to skip a portion of that because it talks about 70 weeks that are specifically for his people. But he only goes as far as explaining up to the last of the 69th week where he says the one who is to come, the Messiah, will be cut off. So there's another week that hasn't been fulfilled. It seems like the Lord intended for that 69th week to come to its conclusion and then there's a parenthesis of time. And that parenthesis of time is the church age. We see that. It wasn't known in the Old Testament, but it is known in our day. It wasn't known a hundred years ago. Israel was not a nation. There were many who had spiritualized in the church all of the events that were speaking of the last days because they couldn't understand how it could be possibly talking about the nation of Israel anymore. There were a few who saw through that error. Joseph Weiss was one of them. He wrote a great exposition before the turn of the 20th century. And he said, I don't see exactly how it can be because from what I can gather, Israel must be existing as a nation for these scriptures to be fulfilled. He understood it literally. And he said, it's got to happen because this is the Word of God. He was a very, very alone kind of theologian in that day because everybody else was saying, oh, no, 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 that doesn't apply to Israel anymore. They're lost. They're gone. He's talking about the church and everything that is spoken of with regard to Israel, since Israel isn't anymore, must apply to us. They were wrong. That doesn't mean that they were not believers. It just means that they were not fully understanding what the Word of God says. But it's interesting to note also in Daniel's prophecy that the angel of the Lord tells Daniel that he is to seal up the words of this book until the end times. And he says, in the last days, knowledge will increase. But we have knowledge now. We have more information. We have better understanding of what God's word said. So we can indeed see literally that these things are going to take place. Well, wait a minute, Pastor Norm. There's a problem. There's no temple in Jerusalem. So all those references to the temple in Jerusalem can't be applied to a real temple, can they be? And my answer to that is, how long do you think it will take them to build it? They're already ready in Israel. They are planning to build a temple. There will be a temple in Jerusalem. And they will do exactly as the Lord has said in His Word with regard to that temple. Including what is recorded for us in Second Thessalonians. But before we turn back to Second Thessalonians, let us read something of great importance to us with regard to this Antichrist, this beast, this son of perdition, this man of lawlessness. It says in verse 25 of chapter 9, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks, a total of sixty-nine weeks of years, 
That's 483 years total. And then the street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublesome time. That happened with Ezra and Nehemiah. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. That's Jesus. At the end of that 69th week, that ended. There's a, a, a comma here in verse 26. He says, the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And then, the latter part of verse 26, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's talking about the Roman invasion of Israel in 70 A.D. The people of the prince to come. That's a clue. Where does the Antichrist come from? This and other scriptures point to the probability, the most likely probability, I suggest, that he is a European Jew. Could be wrong. I don't think he's going to be a Muslim. He could be a Gentile. But the Jews are expecting the Messiah to be one of their own, a son of David, a descendant of David. So how could it be anything but a Jew? But he's coming from the Roman Empire. That implies that the Roman Empire will indeed have some kind of influence in the last days. Well, what happened to the Roman Empire? It basically imploded. Rome was never defeated. They just destroyed themselves. But all of Western Europe once was under the Roman Empire. And if you recall, Daniel had a different dream. A dream where he saw a vision of a statue with a head of gold, chest of silver, bronze in his midsection, iron legs, but the feet were a composite material made up of iron and clay. And if you look through the history that is recorded by the angel of the Lord, that statue represents the kingdoms that will exist throughout man's remaining history, starting with the Babylonian kingdom, and then the Greece of the uh, Medo-Persian, and then the Greece, and then Rome. Rome is no longer in existence. But the feet represent a rebuilding of a Roman Empire. Howbeit, it will be much weaker than it was in its original state. Enter the European Union. These things are happening. These things are real. This is prophesied in God's Word, and they are coming to pass. But in verse 27, well, before 27, let's read the latter part of verse 26 in chapter 9 of Daniel's Gospel. The end of it shall be with a flood. Talking about city of Jerusalem. Desolations are determined. Then he, who's he? The Antichrist. He's changing gears here. He's looking further into the future than he was before. And he says, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. That has not yet happened. But listen, a covenant will be ratified, confirmed with many. He's talking about his own people, the Jews. This one who is coming on the scene is going to establish a peace treaty, a way to bring peace upon the earth. And he's going to bring that peace through a covenant that is being made with Israel. And in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. That means that sacrifices and offering will be conducted in the city of Jerusalem at the temple sometime during that 70th week, that first three and a half years in particular, it will be rebuilt. They will be offering sacrifices once again. And the wing, on the wing of abominations, shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Jesus had said, referring to that passage, that the temple would be indeed destroyed. The city would be ransacked. But he also talked in the future about things that would take place. And he himself referred to the events that are described here. When you see the abomination that takes place in the temple, then you should know that the time is near. Now he's talking to Jews, not to the church, but he's warning them that there is coming a day such as never has been nor ever will be upon the face of the earth. He's talking about that seven-year period of tribulation. 
That's the 70th week of Daniel. The book of Revelation is filled with references to that 70th week, splitting it up into two very distinct periods of time. Each of them described as either three and a half years or 42 months or 1260 days. Three and a half years for the first half of that tribulation and in the middle of that tribulation period, something major is going to take place. And that's what Paul is referring to in this passage that we're looking at this morning. Again, verse 6, Now you know what is restraining that may be revealed, or he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, from whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved." And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned, who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Let's unwrap this particular passage. What Paul is saying is that particular individual is going to come in power, and he's going to be recognized as a great leader. He's going to come and establish a covenant with the people of Israel at the beginning of that seven-year period. The book of Revelation, chapter 6, begins the opening period of time of that seven-year destruction of mankind. And in that passage, he describes in a vision horses with riders on the horse, The first one is a white horse. A white horse is a symbol of peace. This one who is seated on that white horse comes with a bow, but no arrows. He's not coming to bring, at least initially, war on the earth. He's not coming as a warrior. He's coming as a diplomat. And he will establish peace. But immediately following that white horse comes the other three horses of the apocalypse. Read Revelation chapter 6, and you'll find out those details. Those are pictures of the events that will begin to unfold. And then John continues to pull away each layer of the onion until it gets down to the very core of the matter. There will be judgment that will come upon the face of the earth. That first three and a half years will be a time not of peace, although it will begin that way, but it will soon turn into a time of chaos. And there will be many things that will be taking place in that first three and a half years. So much so that a quarter of the mankind on that earth at the time will be annihilated. Think about that. The total population of this world is now around 8 billion people. That's 2 billion souls. Assuming that, well, of course, the church may be gone, and I'm convinced that that will happen, So let's say that a couple of million, or maybe even more, let's say 10 million, or 20 million, or maybe even 100 million saints will be taken out of the world at the rapture. That still leaves a lot of people. Billions will die. Not hundreds of thousands, but billions. It won't be fun. I ain't going to want to be there. I don't know about you. I hate to use the word ain't, but I do it every once in a while for emphasis. It ain't going to happen to me. Well, there are those who think they can get through that period of time. It ain't going to happen to me. I'm not going to take the mark of the beast. I'm not going to be convinced that this guy's going to rule the world. I'm my own man. Oh, yeah? You think you can make it through? You think you can... Die for Christ in that day when you can't even live for Christ now? Think about it. It's ridiculous. Let's see what the Word of God says about this particular beast. And he also has a partner with him. Turn with me to the book of Revelation this time, chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. 
Again, John is seeing descriptively a vision. And you have to know some things about the words that he selects in this passage to understand what is it he's saying about these particular persons and events. Verse 1 of chapter 13 of the book of Revelation says this, Then I saw on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now that doesn't really sound like a man, does it? But it is. It's a picture of an individual. It's personified. And we'll see that as we read later on. But what's he saying? This one that he is describing has ten horns. Horns are evidence of power. He's going to be in charge of kingdoms. Ten kingdoms, in fact. And he's coming out of the sea. Well, the sea, many places in Scripture, both in the Old Testament and the New, is a picture of mankind, the Gentile nations. So when he's saying this one comes out of the sea, the implication is that he's coming from the Gentile world. That's important. But again, he must be a Jew because it's a Jewish story. A Jewish Messiah. A descendant of David could not be a Gentile, could not be an Arab or a Muslim or anything else. He had to be a Jew. So I'm convinced that this is really going to be one who was raised up sometime in the near future from the European Union countries who is a Jew who will establish peace on the earth. Well, what will be the cause of his needing to establish peace? Read Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 for your answer. There's a war coming. It's a war that involves Russia, Iran, Turkey, Libya, Sudan. It's a war that is going to take place in the last days. It's a war that the people of Israel will not be able to defend themselves against, but God will. The Word of God tells us very clearly the armies will come against Israel in that day and they will be soundly defeated, not by Israel's iron dome or their arrow, but by the hand of God. And they will turn to God at that time, recognizing that they could not have done what has been done. But there is going to be all kinds of terror in the world as a result of that particular series of events. And the world will be crying out for peace. They won't find it until this one comes with a solution. He comes with a plan. And that plan has to do with the nation of Israel. Because Israel was central in the terrible things that are starting to unfold in the world. You realize that Jerusalem is still a stumbling block to the nations? It will be more and more as the day continues. Verse 1 of chapter 13 again, Then I saw on the sand of the sea and saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven horns and ten uh, seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon, that's Satan, the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Remember when Jesus was in the wilderness? He was there for forty days. He was fasting. And at the end of that 40 days, Satan came to him. And Satan said to him, Hey, you don't have to go to the cross. Why don't you just bow down and worship me and I will give you all these kingdoms for they are mine to give. Jesus didn't say, Oh, no, they're not. Well, guess what, people? They were his to give. And Jesus refused them because he had a plan. And that plan included the salvation of souls like you and I. Thank God that he did not succumb to that temptation. The temptation was real. Satan is real. And he's going to offer it again to another individual who comes in the power of the enemy. And he will receive that power from the enemy. He'll gladly say yes to the offer of the kingdoms of the world. He will want to have global authority. It will be given to him. 
All power will be given to him. Great authority. Verse 3 says, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. It implies here that this one, this beast, this antichrist, this son of perdition, is going to be assassinated. A mortal wound. Well, the Word of God tells us more about that elsewhere in the Old Testament as well. At the middle of that tribulation period, this individual will apparently be assassinated. But that's at the middle of the tribulation, and it tells us very clearly that he will be raised up again. A, an imitation of the resurrection of Christ will indeed take place. Whether he was truly dead or not, it will at least appear as he had been mortally wounded. I'm convinced, though, that he would, have, would be and will be killed. And he will be raised up on the third day, or, the third, or rather in the middle of the, the, the seven weeks, at the end of the three and a half years that began this tribulation period. And when he does come up out of the grave, or from the pit, he will be indwelt by Satan. And it is then that he enters into the newly built temple in Jerusalem, walks into the Holy of Holies, and declares himself to be God. Read again in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. He opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And men on the earth will believe him. That's happening. When? I don't know who the Antichrist is. I believe that he's probably alive today. I think we're that close. But there's no reason for us to worry about who he is because we're not looking for the Antichrist people. We're looking for the Christ. I hope you understand that. Keep looking up. Your redemption draws near. Look for Jesus, the author of your salvation. He's coming. You don't need to worry about this Antichrist. But the world does, and the world will be caught unawares because of their unbelief. But he's not the only one on the scene. At around the same time, he's getting complete global control politically and economically, but also spiritually. Take note again in Second Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians, in verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Guess what's going to happen? There will be a religious deception. Again, that can't happen if the church is still there because the church is what was referred to in this earlier passage in Second Thessalonians, we'll get back to that momentarily, but he says there is a restraining force. The Holy Spirit in you is that restraining force, my friends. And yes, we're not eliminating evil. Evil has been with us all along. Lawlessness does continue in the world. Even John said in his day that they were the spirit of Antichrist. And many Antichrists were on the scene even in his day. There was evidence of evil throughout the church age. And there will always be. But after the church is gone, all of those religions of the world are going to have to come up with some kind of a solution to keep their religions worth considering. Can you imagine the, the terrible events that will take place when the rapture of the church happens. And all of those who never ever considered Christ, who believed in their faith in their God or faith in their church, are now wondering what is going on. Well, there will be a solution. There will be an answer. And that answer will come as a deception, as a great lie. Read it again, verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. They will see miracles taking place. They'll look at what's going on in the world around them and say, Wow! God is still with us after all. Look at the miracles that this is going on for our benefit so that we can see 
There is a God that we can serve. And He just identified Himself. He's a God that just appeared in the temple of Jerusalem in their place of worship. So He must be the one and only true God. And so they will unite together all of the religions, the Muslim faith, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, the, every church that doesn't really accept Christ's work on the cross. Presbyterian, Ethiopians, or not Ethiopians, Episcopalian. They were probably Ethiopians too there. But the point is this. All of the world's religions will come together under one unity. Coexist. You see that bumper sticker every once in a while? Coexist? They will. Ain't going to happen while I'm on board, but it will happen. But I want to tell you how that will happen by going back again to Revelation chapter 13. Because not only does Revelation chapter 13 talk about the beast, the Antichrist, the man of sin, the lawless one, but he also talks about his partner in crime, if you will. Revelation chapter 13, beginning with verse 11. Then I saw another beast, John tells us, coming up out of the earth. Wait a minute. The one was coming out of the sea. This one's coming out of the earth. The implication, by the way, because of that word, is that this man is a Jew from Israel. A religious leader, a rabbi from Israel, will be on the scene. And he will be used by the Antichrist to form a religion that the whole world will believe in and accept. And this is how he does it. Read on. Verse 12 of chapter 13 says, And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. That would happen at the end of the three and a half years of tribulation that began this mess when he is raised from the dead and goes into the temple and proclaims himself to be God, this guy is going to say, okay, people, you have seen evidence that cannot be denied. This is now your God that you are to worship. And he causes all who dwell in the world to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that even he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. That's interesting, too, because in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, there will be two men in Jerusalem standing probably by the wailing wall proclaiming the good news. During that three and a half years period of time, that first three and a half years, they will be witnesses. Some believe Moses and Elijah will be there doing that very thing because the miracles that they will be performing, and they will be performing miracles in God's name during that first three and a half years. And they'll be calling fire down from heaven. You know that Satan can duplicate God's miracles? Think back in the time of Egypt, when the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt. And Moses went to Pharaoh and said, set my people free. And Moses used the signs that God gave to him to prove that his God is God. So he would cast down his rod on the ground and it became a serpent. Well, the problem was, at least it was initially for Moses, because he wasn't expecting this, Pharaoh's magicians took their rods and cast them on the ground, and they turned into serpents. Whoa! They can duplicate this. Yeah. Yes, they can. And they will be again. I believe it very, very sincerely. This man will have the power to do these things. But there came a time, even in Pharaoh's day, that the magicians couldn't duplicate what God was doing through Moses. He created life out of the dust of the earth. Out of the dust of the earth, he created lice. And the magicians of Egypt said, This is the finger of God. They couldn't do it. Although they could do some of those things that Moses did, they could not do all of what Moses did because his God is bigger than their God. 
the beast from the earth will do mighty miracles. He will duplicate what has done and been done rather before. And the people will look at that and say, wow, this must be true. We follow him because of those things that we're seeing. Deception. But the greatest deception of all is spoken of by the Apostle Paul in chapter 2, in verse 11, where he says, And for this reason God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Now some of your translations don't quite put it that way, but it is exactly that way in the original language. The definite article, the lie. What's the lie? It's the lie that is being propagated by the Antichrist, that he is God. And God will send, it says, strong delusions so that they might believe that lie. Now, if you're again thinking that maybe you'll be able to survive during that tribulation period, guess what? That deception will be just as real to you in that day as it is to any sinner, as it is to any child molester, as it is to any drug dealer, as it is to any murderer or thief. It will be the same for all who are upon the face of the earth. Read it carefully. He says, they all, verse 12, will be condemned who did not believe the truth. What's the truth? I'm glad you asked. Go back to John's Gospel with me. John chapter 14. We've referred to this passage on more than one occasion in the last few weeks, but I want to share with you what Jesus says about himself after one of his followers asked, What do you mean? We know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, Oh, Thomas, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So if you're here today like Pilate asking the questions, well, what is truth? Let me tell you what truth is. Jesus Christ is truth. He is the way. He is the only truth. There is no truth other than the truth that is represented by Him. His Word is true. And He is the Word of God. And God cannot lie. He is the truth. And what He has spoken is true. So what we believe is true is that He has come to save all of us from our sins. Chapter 5 tells us that specifically. In verse 24 of chapter 5 of the book of John I'm referring to, He says this, Most assuredly, and this is Jesus speaking, I say to you, He who hears My word and believes in Him who sent Me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. What's the judgment? It's the judgment that is coming in the last days that Paul is in, in this passage that we've been looking at, speaking of the time of Jacob's trouble, the time of wrath, such as no man has known nor ever shall know again. Do you understand? Do you believe what Jesus is saying? You are a believer in Him. Good. Then you are safe from that destruction that is to come. That's what Jesus is saying here. If He hears my word and believes in Him who sent me, you have everlasting life. You have it. It's certain. It is given. It is without fail a promise that He has kept and will keep. Chapter 3 of John's Gospel. We often quote verse 16 where he says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But read on what he says in the subsequent verses. Verse 17 says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through Him might be saved. You realize what Jesus is here saying is that it's not God's will that any should perish. Peter affirms that in his letters. But that all should come to a saving knowledge. It's not God's will that you should go into eternity without Him, in outer darkness, in eternal torment, in judgment against anyone who has rejected the truth of God's Word, His truth, 
Jesus Christ. He says in verse 18, He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is a condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Again, we've got this distinction between people who want to be in the light and people who want to remain in the darkness. You cannot coexist forever in that state. You are going to either choose one or the other. And like the parable of the wheat and the tares, yes, they coexist now in this present hour, but there's coming a time of separation. We will be removed from the earth so that He can judge those who remain on the earth with that final judgment that must take place. Back in Second Thessalonians, I had mentioned there's a restrainer in the world presently. Now, there have been many suggestions as to the identity of this restrainer. Most of them rather ludicrous, I might add. Very short-sighted at the least. But we read the entire Word of God as we intend to do so here. We intend to present the whole truth of God's Word so that we can know what is meant by this restraining force that Paul refers to here. I'm reminded that Paul had told those Thessalonians because he tells them, don't you remember I told you these things? Now you know what restrains. It's interesting that he uses both a gender neutral and a masculine gender when he talks about gen, uh, gender when he talks about that which restrains or the one which restrains. And I suggest to you that that kind of causes some problems in many theologians' minds. Not mine, because I don't have a problem with the way he describes the Holy Spirit both in the neutral gender and in the masculine gender, I'm convinced that that which is restraining is the Holy Spirit's work through the church in these last days. It fits all of the scripture, not just a piece of it here and there. And you need to understand when you're comparing scripture to scripture, if your understanding of the scripture fails to agree with every part of God's word, then perhaps your doctrine is wrong. I choose rather to build doctrine upon all of the Scripture rather than Scripture on my doctrine. And I've read through several commentaries through the study of this particular passage that we're looking at today, and I've seen over and over again well-meaning, Bible-believing Christians saying things like, well, it reads this way, but it means this. Oh, friends, don't go down that path. If it says it, Believe it. That's the best and safest way to understand and rightly divide God's Word. That's what we intend to continue to do here, the Lord willing. But he says, that which is restraining will be taken out of the way. In other words, evil, though it's being restrained now in this present hour, and you might look around and say, well, it's not doing a very good job of that. That's true that we're not doing a very good job of it. I'm glad you mentioned it. Because we can do better. We can be more on our knees. We can be asking the Lord to fill us with His Holy Spirit. We can be asking God to use us in this last days to tell everyone we come into contact with about the good news of Jesus Christ's salvation for our sins, washing away of our sins, cleansing us and making us whole and giving us eternal life. We can let them know that there is little precious time left for them to act on these things because there is coming a day of darkness when the light will no longer shine. It's shining now. And there is a restraining force that we are indeed a part of as believers in Christ Jesus. But when the church is removed, that's not to say that the Holy Spirit will be removed from the earth because He won't be. The church will be no longer here. And the work of the Holy Spirit through the church will come to its end. And it will be then that the Holy Spirit, though He'll be still present on the earth, and I'm convinced of that because in the tribulation period, there are some who will believe. They're known as tribulation saints by many. 
That's just another story we might get to later. But the point of this is the Holy Spirit will still be at work in the world, but he won't be at work restraining evil. He'll allow Satan to do his thing. In the book of Job, we find God sitting on his throne and Satan comes before the Lord. And the Lord asks Satan, Hey, where you been, buddy? Mild paraphrase. And Satan answers, Oh, I've been walking to and fro. Just looking around, seeing what's going on, looking at your creation. They're a mess, you know. God said, Well, Satan, what do you want to do? Satan said, There's this guy named Job. And I just want to have some fun. Let me add him for a while. He says, you're his God. He worships you. He serves you. He trusts in you. But you've put a hedge around him. You've made him prosperous. You've given him everything he needs. Why wouldn't he serve you with all the good things that you've given to him? Take those things away and let's see what he says about you then. It's interesting that God says, go ahead. Do it. But you're limited. You can take everything he owns, everything that comes from his loins, but do not harm him so that he dies. Restraining force of the Holy Spirit. And there are many, many other places in the Word of God that show that very thing. He does restrain. It does not mean that he eliminates evil. He just restrains evil. We're slowing evil down. But evil is making more and more headway in the direction of that day that is about to come. And there is coming a day when we'll be swept out of this place that we call home. And by the way, it's not really our home. We're just pilgrims passing through. We're sojourners. I hope you understand that. This place is not ours. We have a different location to look forward to. Even Abraham in his day believed that God had promised him there's a city whose Builder and maker is God. And that's what he was looking forward to. And I present to you that that should be exactly what you were looking forward to as well. That wonderful city that is soon going to be revealed. The new Jerusalem. That's, again, another part of the story that we'll get to another time. But here in this passage in Second Thessalonians, take again a look, going back to verse 6. Paul says, now you know. What is restraining? Now you know what is restraining people. That he, the Antichrist, may be revealed in his own time. There's a time and place for him to show up on the scene. God prescribes that time. Satan has no control over when that will take place. Neither does that man who will be known as the Antichrist. Again, he may be on the earth now, and I believe he is, but he doesn't know yet when he's going to be used by God. I wonder if he even knows if he is going to be used by God against God. It's interesting to me, I hope it is to you, the Apostle John, in the book of Revelation, gives this particular individual not a name, but an identification. He uses a numbering system of probably the Hebrew language or possibly the Greek language to say that the number of his name is 666. 666. Both the Greek and the Hebrew alphabets have numeric values for the letters. And if you take the letters of a name and you add them all up, and if that name equals 666, you've identified the Antichrist. Well, not exactly. Because again, we don't know if he was using the Hebrew language or the Greek, and they are different. So either way, there's a level of uncertainty with regarding to what this guy's name will be. But that hasn't stopped a lot of theologians and a lot of speculators as to who that one might be. Even as far back as the first century, some believed it was Nero. Some believed it was Judas Iscariot, raised from the dead. Some believed it was Hitler. Some believed it was Ronald Reagan. 
Some believed it was, get this, Bill Clinton. And Hillary Clinton was his prophet. Some believed foolish things. Now, I've taken the time, by the way, to take some individuals that are involved in the Middle East right now, and I've looked at the Hebrew language in particular, because I love Hebrew, and I started calculating some names, numbers, by the names, and I said, oh, that adds up to 666. Is it him? I don't care. I don't know. I'm not suggesting that it is. And I'm not telling you who it is that I found that revelation about. But when we're in heaven and everything starts to explode down here on the earth, I'll let you know then. I'm probably wrong too. As they all were. Nobody can know. And frankly, none of us should care. We just need to know about Him and what He's about to do. And that's what we've sought to convey here today. Oh, there's so much more that we could share and perhaps it's another study another time. But I think enough has been said for us to be fully aware of what our responsibility must be in this last hour. So let's go do what God has called us to do. Let's all be what God has called us to be. Let's all say what God has told us to say. Let's all proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's all live for Him. Let's all serve Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength in these last hours. Let's all be faithful stewards of the mysteries of God. Let's all be His ambassadors, proclaiming, believing, and acting as though we do the very Word of God. Are you with me? Are you anxious to see God use you in such a way as this? Or are you just wanting to sit back and coast for the rest of your days? Well, you can do either. My choice is to go out in blazing victory. And I think He'll want us all to do that too. Let's do it in Jesus' name. Amen.